Welcome to Just a GP podcast. My name is Ashley Broomfield and I'm here with my co-host Charlotte Hespy. Today we are super excited again to welcome on Pamela Douglas on the podcast with us. She joined us last September to talk about pioneering paradigm shifts. We promised that we would get her back on to talk about values-based action from a medical personal perspective and how that plays out in work and and life from a, a doctor's perspective. So I'm super interested to sort of dive into the conversation around how we can identify for ourselves what's most important to us and how that can translate into what we do in the world. But before we get into that conversation, uh, I'd like to ask you both about your highlights of the week. So Pam, I know you have a wonderful highlight of this week. I will let you share that for us. I think my highlight probably was something similar last time. It has to be reading to my now five-year-old grandson who lives in Brooklyn, New York. So 10 a.m. twice a week, clear the schedule and make sure it's there as sacred time. I read to him at his bedtime. In fact, he's reading to me too now. He's He's learning how to read. So this week's highlight, you know, is just starting to pick out letters and type through on chat. And he typed through this little phrase, I'm in the middle of you, which I worked out meant I'm in the middle of you. I'm in your heart. It was the most amazing little thing. It's hard to beat that for me this week. That's been my highlight. Just a gorgeous way that he was telling me he loves me, even though I'm so far away and he only sees me on the screen you know that's wonderful yeah. I might have perhaps been leading towards also a, a potential work highlight for you <laughs> although I, I totally agree that that being in the middle of your heart that for sure <laughs> it's so funny because there has been a really important work highlight thanks thanks Ashley for, for reminding me that that we've just finalised a grant. The Department of Health has awarded Possums and Co a grant as one of their emerging priorities in the support of perinatal mental health. And this is very exciting because it will allow us to upskill 300 rural and remote GPs and other health professionals in their networks over a four-year period and also offer 3,000 of their patients over the four-year period a free access into the parent support hub that we offer at Possums & Co. So yes, that, that actually is a highlight to share with you. And Charlotte? Well, that's pretty hard to beat, isn't it? It's not a competition. It's- <laughs> <laughs> this week's sort of been a weird week. A bit hard to say that there was sort of like a good highlight because it's just been overtaken for me by work and the response to Scott Morrison sort of dumping on the GPs this week about the need to counsel all the under 40s about AstraZeneca. So for me, I think, look, I've just come out of a meeting that was with the New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian and um, the Chief Health Officer Kerry Chant and Brad Hazard, our Health Minister, so that the highlight for me is that I am working in New South Wales in a really good team in terms of leadership, trying to make the best of a situation we don't have much control over in terms of numbers of vaccine, what type of vaccine and how it's actually distributed and the communications around that. And, 
you know, so that's been really good. And just it's like anything when there's disruption, there's opportunity and trying to maybe make the most of this new, very good relationship with the higher level politicians at this point in time. We know politicians do come and go. I'm not saying that New South Wales government is coming or going, but just on that, we do need to, as GPs, I think, really sell our story about why we are so important in the health system and also get them to understand how poorly funded it is. And therefore, the future of a good general practice community is really vulnerable at the moment. And for me, that's something I really, really, really need politicians to understand so that they can save our health system before it tumbles into a crevice or whatever it is, you know, have some sort of avalanche occur that means that we are irreparably buried at the bottom of that mountain. So for me, maybe I'll have to look at that as my highlight, but it is totally work-related and I've just been a little bit overwhelmed by the sense of, but we've got a job to do. Mine's kind of like a personal slash work highlight, and that's that I was able to receive my first Pfizer jab on Monday. So I was in that sort of cohort where as the AstraZeneca thrombosis stuff was coming out, I actually had to have a tetanus jab because I like to have fresh flowers in my consult room so that like if I'm having, you know, a bad day or, you know, just sort of to brighten the room a little bit in between patients, I just sort of look at the flowers and I cut myself. And so I needed to update my tetanus jab and then it got changed to under 60 for AstraZeneca and I I decided to sort of, okay, well, I'll see what happens with Pfizer or go to the the hospital clinic and I wasn't able to get an appointment for a long time and then I was able to get it on Monday. So it was hip hip hooray. We both had our first shot on Monday then. Yes. All right. So before we get into a discussion around what is values-based action in in work, perhaps we should talk a little bit about uh, what I mean by value. And from my understanding and how I tend to conceptualize it is has been taught to me from Russ Harris who's one of the GP trainers of acceptance and commitment therapy he talks about values are sort of things that cannot be achieved so you can always work more towards a value it's not something that is like a goal whereas a goal can be achieved but a value is something that you can always work towards and it's different from virtues in that virtues are placed on us as society so the society might say that kindness is something that it values as a society as a whole but as an individual you may not value kindness so virtues are considered those that are placed on us as from society cultural religion whereas values can be very personal and values can also be different in different circumstances so you might value kindness, empathy, compassion in relationships or in family or, you know, in consultations, but you might value strength, tenacity and determination in terms of the vaccination rollout and standing up for our profession in the future in in a different context. And so they don't always necessarily align in all different aspects of our lives, but they can be very similar. And the reason why I was keen to talk to Pam about this is because at Possums and Co, part of the neuroprotective developmental care pathway, we use mental health skills from an ACT framework, which often brings in talking to parents around their personal values about how they would like to be as parents and in relationship and 
in their community and that helps us to sort of guide them with strategies that also are in line with what their values are and I have found that component of ACT to be really helpful in my clinical work with people just in general figuring out what's most important to them. But I also got the sense, Pam, that, you know, there's a real sense of the work that you do in the space of support for mums and dads and parents and their children in early life is really deeply entrenched in terms of what your personal values are as well. Uh, and I know that you're, you're familiar with act and, and values. So I thought it would be a really great thing to talk about. How does that approach help to guide you as a person in your work? And how can other GPs sort of connect with that in themselves? And, and how can that help them in terms of navigating where to put their time and energy? I might actually start by stepping back a little bit and commenting on the times that we live in, actually. Here we are in a pandemic, lockdown in Queensland, but of course, many of you interstate have lived through far more stringent lockdown circumstances. So we have a pandemic, but we are living in a time of climate crisis, a time when our best scientists tell us that we have something like 10 years to avoid a trajectory of catastrophic climate change. We live in a time of mass species extinction. In my lifetime, something like 70% of the world's vertebrate species have disappeared. You know, insect Armageddon has been a reality. We live in quite extraordinary times. And I think these are times in which all of us need to be clarifying what our values are. And so when we're looking at our values Professionally, I actually think it has to be held in this broader global context. And so for me personally, when I look at what's happening in a global context, then I get up in the morning and think, right, what I'm going to do today in my work life is make my contribution towards the empowerment of women actually is a guiding light for me and has been for many years. So Ashley, I do find acceptance and commitment therapy, a very exciting set of strategies really to help myself personally and then the patients that we deal with navigate their way through life. And acceptance and commitment therapy, just as you've said, has at its heart values clarification and how do we live a life that aligns with our values without actually finding that our behaviours are in the control of the thoughts and feelings that come and go and can often be very powerful and very unhelpful. So yes, values clarification, I guess, is really powerful as a tool working with families, in my case with new families, parents with babies, but has been a really important way of kind of setting my compass professionally over decades now. I wouldn't like to say I've always got it right, by the way. But, you know, like so many GPs, I think I think most GPs are really values-driven, actually. But yes, it's been something that I've just constantly revisited day after day in my working life. You know, what really matters to me here as a GP and certainly about service and honing in for me as I've developed my particular research and education interests around the empowerment of women. That's one response in a, a sort of overview way to your question. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? Because I remember when we when we initially talked last time, you talked around how you felt a bit out of place in the profession and it took you a while before you felt at home again amongst being a GP. I have these some days where I think, oh, I want to do that and I want to do that and I want to do that and then I want to do that and then I want to do that and all of a sudden, you know, my schedule is extremely full and you can't do everything all at once and you can't be everything to every person. Over the years, I found it really helpful to sort of connect to that idea. I think we had Todd Cameron on the podcast once where he said, who are the people that you serve the most, you know, who gets the most benefit from your care Mm. and who do you really enjoy working with? And to me, that really sort of helped, you know, combined with that idea about what kind of person do I want to be in life and what kind of GP do I want people to say that I am when they go home at night. And it's helped me to really make the decisions of do I do that or do I do that? Yeah. And I must say, you know, if I look back over my career to date, I did try to follow just follow what really brought me joy and satisfaction in ways that at the time seemed a little bit disparate. So I'd moved into that PhD, started out as a master's, but turned out to be a PhD in creative writing and women's studies, which, you know, on the surface of it is disciplines apart from what I was doing day by day in the clinic. But of course, actually deeply informs the direction that I've taken my work over the years because the women's studies, the sort of lens of gender analysis is very important, I think, to apply to our experiences as GPs, given that, are you familiar with the Lancet 2019 series on gender inequity in medicine? Yeah, so quite a groundbreaking series. I can see Charlotte nodding there just quite extraordinary and it points out just how deeply embedded gender inequity actually is in the practice of medicine. And then, of course, if we look at research, gender inequity is deeply embedded in research. So I think something like 2.5% of research funding in one big UK study was dedicated to reproductive health, given that you know, this is a reproductive health is a major issue for 50% or more of the world's population. And so women's health is under-researched and underfunded. And then, of course, there's gender inequity in the medical academia. That's clear. So offered a tangent there to talk about the relevance, really, of that work I did in a PhD, which was really following my heart and my interest outside the practice of medicine, outside general practice, but actually has deeply informed my work. And then just the storytelling. So in the creative writing, I was gathering up stories really from the clinic or, you know, appropriately protect and anonymous, but gathering up stories both from my clinical experience and from my personal life around that time of life through pregnancy, birth and very early year or two of raising children. So a kind of formalising what I've always loved in the clinic, what those GPs listening to us, I think, also love, the stories, that deep sharing of the stories of that person's life, embodied stories, how their stories impact on their body and how their health, of course, impacts on the stories their life's creating. So that would be one tangent where I did follow my joy and actually it's come back to deeply inform what I've been doing professionally. And of course, now looking back, 
Johanna Lynch actually alerted me to a nice little article on the transdisciplinary individual. And it's just a nice way of making sense for me of what seemed at the time to be quite disparate parts of, of my identity. Um, but actually, like, you know, most GPs, actually, I'm excited by that movement between disciplines, by by thinking in an interdisciplinary way, by locating health in the psychosocial, in the cultural. Yeah, so I guess if we're, if we're thinking values, again, another very long way. I hope this sort of meanders of interest because I actually did try to follow, you know, where my heart was calling me to in terms of my interests and my passions. Couldn't do it perfectly, very constrained as so many of us are by life, by family responsibilities, by the need to earn. But actually now at this time in my life, I see where I was brave and followed my heart. It actually has all come together to inform, you know, whatever contribution I'm able to make now. And that's particularly through the lens of Possums and Co and Neuroprotective Developmental Care. Yes. And we'll be interviewing Joanna at the end of July. So for our listeners, probably released in August. Yeah. 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 And she does talk in her book, which is called The Whole Person Approach to Wellbeing around the utility of a transdisciplinary approach when looking at health and well-being in that we often tend to research separately. You know, medical research is done in, in isolation of sociological research. And as you say, you know, it, it made total sense to me when I was reading this because as you listen to stories about people's lives and as GPs, I think that's one of the beauties of general practice is we know the people that we work with we know our communities and we know how the impact of what's happening in our community is affecting the health of our community and so we sort of we often talk on this podcast about the general practice not being very sexy you know oh but I think it's incredibly sexy you know I'm sure we've said this last time but it's here that I would argue that, you know, the greatest intellectual challenges in the practice of medicine lie. It's in general practice. It's at this place where we're embedded in community, where we both need the breadth of biomedical knowledge, but the depth of psychosocial, cultural sensitivity and knowledge. And if we really are to move forward into health system reform, may this happen, you know, one day, you know, into genuine health system reform, then obviously it's primary health care that's at the forefront. If there's to be rational use of the medical dollar, obviously, we all know this, everyone listening knows this, then that investment has to be in primary health care and in primary health care research. One to two percent of funding from the the NH and MRC and the Medical Futures Fund to primary care. It's just... It's totally crazy. It's outrageous, you know. And then if you think that women's health issues are a much smaller percentage, again, things that specifically relate to women, let alone what, what I'm aiming to do in my work around that early life care. That's why actually in 2013 I established a charity because it became clear that if I was to pursue education and research in this space, there's not funding for primary care innovation, really. And we know what comes out of the university, which is so important, but is very often coming out of the university, the tertiary sector, very often doesn't really land in a way 
that's effective within general practice, within primary care. But see, that's where I say that that's the problem with primary health care not being sexy because although it's sexy for those of us who just love it and get the passion of it, I mean, for me, I just love that holistic patient care. I love the bigger picture. I love that nuance of the aha moment when you get what it is that's behind a patient's illness and that that, that is often not a science-based thing but a brain-based thing and being able to try and explain to them too that just because it isn't a function of a disease in their gut or something that it isn't of equal importance to their health and that still has to be solved you know it's so hard to sell that to a scientific community I mean if we go I do research and I'm fascinated I go to these meetings where dominated by men who have this very good sense of self, very good sense of self-esteem and importance, and they don't get the emotive side of things, which then includes, for me, qualitative research. So they like a number. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I love data. I love numbers and I love just seeing what's happening. But I love more the figuring out the why. You know, the data is the, the what and the qualitative understanding of why and how I can solve it is so much more fascinating to me. I just love that. I would say that complexity is the great intellectual adventure of general practice research. And in fact, general practice research does itself a disservice if it's trying to compete with the highly biomedical lens of the other medical specialties. Yes, but we, we do compete with it, don't we, though? That's the problem, which is why we have to go back to that whole value-based thing, you know. For me, like I'm very happy to find out about that really small, never-known-of-before enzyme that has meant that then we have this sort of other consequence that then gives us this very rare illness which affects a child's development, for instance, you know, like if you go into some of those things. But what I think is so much more important is that not so much more important. It's a different importance about actually the those socio-demographic childhood experience stuff that actually has a far deeper, more profound health impact on our community and yet we just let it sway past and we let scientists say it's not as important because, you know, of that, well, I call it the sexy factor, it sounds so much sexier that you're standing in a lab in your white coat and you've discovered this amazingly difficult to find enzyme or, you know, something, which we just, we don't have in that same way. But if we go to stories, I know like for me, one of the big stories about value-based care came out of Scotland, who was talking about, he doing this research and trying to understand why the health of Scottish poor people was so bad. And it was absolutely that whole childhood experience stuff. And part of then the solution for that was trying to get families out of the poverty cycle, you know, and, and about reading and stuff. And he had this beautiful, beautiful story about teddy bears, using a teddy bear to get a child, to get a parent to read them a story. So it was empowering the child to say, my teddy bear needs a story. And that got a parent to read the story. The parent's desire to read the child the story wasn't actually a hook enough 
But the child to say, we need to do it for my teddy bear was. And these children's literacy really improved because all of a sudden they were hearing stories and sharing time with their parents. And, you know, it's it was just like for me, and I'm just doing it now too, it's that goose bump thing about just seeing, you know, something that isn't scientific at all yet has this amazing impact on the health of a community. And yet it is interesting because we do have data in terms of the Adverse Childhood Experience Survey and then the follow-up of that about the health impacts and the the association between an increase in adverse experience and a subsequent increase in health impacts later on in life. I learned about sustainable development goals recently and one of the sustainable development goals is around uh, enhancing women's reproductive health and it's underpinned by the evidence that women who have a high level of education and access to contraception actually improve the overall health of communities when that's achieved. So we're kind of, we have this sort of data that's there, but it just doesn't seem to sort of get translated. And we've got the data that we know if you put more funds into primary care, you get better health outcomes and it still doesn't translate into sort of meaningful action after that. What I have noticed working in this field is as people try and support primary care even more, I notice that the complexity keeps coming up. They want to sort of go, okay, well, we need to we need to understand primary care. We need to help you guys do what you do. And then, you know, I remember going to like a service mapping workshop for one of the services that I worked in. They had all these lines everywhere. And then they were just, they were like, this is really complex. And even looking at something like disordered eating, you know, how to determine what's going on in that person's context, it's really complex. You know, there's lines all over the place. And I think slowly as people start to look at what it is to research what primary care does is they're realising how complex the system is. It's hard. Yeah. Well, right from the start, for me professionally, See, I started out at a time when, so this is sort of mid to late 80s, where the treatment for diverticulitis, for instance, was low residue diet. Or moving through the 90s, women who were breastfeeding being put on these maternal elimination diets with the idea that it prevented, treated or prevented allergy, which of course, you know, diverticulitis, low residue diet, worsens diverticulitis, internal elimination diets, unless they're absolutely necessary, are going to increase risk of allergy. You know, moving through the 90s also, I could see how the big emphasis on calorie reduction for obesity was actually really worsening women's weight, men and women. But you could see how the way we were approaching that as a profession was actually causing mental anguish for women in terms of their relationship with their bodies, which in the end actually, you know, resulted in weight gain, even if there was some initial weight loss. Just to give examples, you know, so way back, because I had such a sense of cognitive dissonance around quite a lot of what I was, you know, needing to do in general practice if I was to hold to the usual protocols, I began to clarify that my frames were complexity dynamic systems, complexity science, and also that I was working, I began to realise and began to dip into all of this research literature out of the frames of evolutionary medicine, evolutionary biology. And so again, this has informed 
my work very deeply because I would say that when we're dealing with, say, disruptions in the complex adaptive system of that mother and baby or the parents and their baby, then if we put in simplistic interventions, simplistic interventions into complex systems will very often cause unintended outcomes. We need to be looking at complex interventions for complex adaptive systems. And so then began to develop up the multifaceted um, neuroprotective developmental care across those five domains that we work with. But you can see, I actually think this is all incredibly sexy. And the reason I would say that it doesn't have that same cachet is, is it's about money, isn't it? And about a society that really is driven by market forces, I mean, if we're frank about it, but often quite unregulated market forces. And this is the case very often in terms of the health system, complex again, but there's money bound up with the big biotech end of things. And this very exciting, very sexy part of healthcare, which is the way of the future, which is where there's great intellectual adventure for doctors. There's not money being directed this way. When I, I worked in the UK, what was very interesting there was that the doctor's salaries were all the same. So if I went into general practice, I would earn the same as the paediatrician, as the same as the respiratory physician, because they were paid on a salary and there wasn't the same sort of change in the way in which you viewed the, the lens you viewed, the specialty you were going to go and train in wasn't coloured by the amount of money you earned. And yet, you know, back in Australia, there was dissonance between what was earnable in a general practice specialty versus some of the others. And I remember as a junior doctor being a little bit, I suppose, bemused by looking at how, you know, certain specialties were valued because of how much you could earn rather than necessarily the skill that your head needed in order to deal with it. And also, too, that as a medical student, I'd been sold, the same as a lot of people, the story that general practice was very simple and, you know, it was just about seeing a cough and a cold and that, therefore, that would be a very boring part of medicine. And I didn't have a, an opportunity to challenge it because you go straight into a hospital system where you do get this sort of idea that, you know, that the more cognitively challenging and exciting medicine is something different. And I just count myself very fortunate that I actually fell into general practice and discovered that it wasn't this simple and straightforward specialty. And in fact, this, this amazing complex beast. But I was never taught that, never. I had to learn it for myself. And, you know, it is sort of one of those things that I, in teaching medical students, I try and get them to understand that th this is not a simple, straightforward specialty. And it, but it's not one to be afraid of. It is one to be excited by. And what a privilege of a specialty too, because you do get an ability, not just have your own values, but to learn about the different values that so many different people hold. And then to get such an amazingly rich perspective on where people are coming from and understanding why people do what they do and have the choices that they make when otherwise you can stand back and be very judgmental sometimes without really getting what colours those choices. 
And I think what you're talking about there, Charlotte, to me, like three sort of words that came up for me was as a clinician, uh, there needs to be a sense of curiosity and openness and sort of empathy in order to get that level of the layer underneath, you know, what the simple thing might be. And, you know, we're talking a little bit about value in medicine and women in medicine and the difference in terms of where value is placed within our field. And, you know, I certainly, as a identifying female GP, there is an element of when we choose to honour those values in ourselves, that also comes at the cost of a choice to receive a lower income to provide a care in a way that services the needs of our population compared to throughput medicine. That's so true. And that's such a clear example of gender inequity in general practice, isn't it? Complex problems, you know, systemic problems. But it is interesting that when you're talking about some of that gender thing, I remember when I went into medicine and I'd been, I think, very privileged in that my upbringing was such that I had actually been totally protected from the idea that there was gender inequality anywhere. So having said that, I knew that there were gender differences but it hadn't coloured my the choices that were put in front of me. And when I went into my first year of medicine, I, for the first time ever, actually experienced people for whom it had been a totally different experience to get there and what had coloured their whole sort of story. And I often reflect back on my own, I've been very benign in my interpretation of gender inequality and I think that's because I'm so comfortable in being female and so therefore I've been far too tolerant of the gender inequality around me because I haven't actually it hasn't been my experience does that that make sense and so I I feel guilty now as I'm getting to a a point of of getting that about myself is that you sometimes if you do feel so comfortable in yourself because you haven't been challenged on it you don't get how hard it's been for somebody else either you know so therefore as a female I therefore don't necessarily understand the female female battle that has gone on around me and it's interesting because again that comes from that whole value based thing is that I have been so fortunate in being very comfortable and loving being a female and loving the opportunities that I have as a female that I've never felt it's ever stopped me doing what I want to do. And I guess, you know, we've had this conversation a couple of times on the podcast and I think we should frame it that we're not saying that women are the only GPs who can understand complexity and complex patients and who enjoy doing slow medicine and and seeing people as a whole person. We're definitely, you know, not saying that. I guess it's, you know, the frame of this discussion is more around that typicality I don't think that's a word, but I'm going to put it out there as a word of that women tend to see that sort of more emotional mental health side a, a lot of the time. Sometimes gender is a false way of, of understanding what people's skills are and we can do these generalisations because I know that, you know, for a lot of men I know, they've got fantastic skills, they've experienced what happens to women and are the best advocates for women where again in my journey as a a woman 
in fact, the sort of the most bullying I've experienced has actually been from women and not from men. And so I suppose I often feel therefore uncomfortable when we do just colour it as a male or female thing in terms of gender, because I think, again, it's a bit like general practice, isn't it? It's actually more complex than that. And we do sort of get coloured by our own experience. And and my feeling is that a lot of women who who I've experienced as bullying me, again, it's about this power thing that that's sort of how they've learnt to cope in the world and they've taken on certain traits that have actually enabled them to get to where they're getting rather than other things. I mean, I don't know. And that really takes us back to living in line with personal values, doesn't it? Because, you know, there's if you have a passion for health system reform or a passion for enacting change or a passion for empowerment and the values underneath that are I don't know that can be different for every person but then if how you are trying to do that and the ways that you're trying to do that is in conflict with your underlying values then is what you're doing still helpful or useful or important you know and it's it's a really interesting sort of thing to consider. Well just sort of segueing a bit from that without directly addressing it you know with ACT acceptance and commitment therapy the applied functional contextualism one of its more technical names I think it supports well supports me as an individual but if we're working with patients we can also support these skills around behaving in our life in a way that aligns with our values without having our behaviour controlled by a lot of the unhelpful thoughts that get so busy in our brains or the the powerful feelings that come and go. You know, and I think loads of self-compassion is required as we journey on through life wanting to live professionally and indeed personally in a way that aligns with our values. Loads of self-compassion because there's lots of times when I am not true to my guiding light but self-compassion and then back onto that path. But this is so important I think professionally. So you can see for me there's the clinical context where we're sitting down with patients and all sorts of feelings may come and go particularly you know depending on the time of day, but depending on the patient, of course, because there are some folks who who are more challenging or who may trigger us. So having that kind of mindfulness, that capacity to notice what's happening inside ourselves, know that our value is kindness, making time to listen, allowing this person space, whatever, balanced with the self-care and the need to manage that consultation professionally and more or less within time constraints. But being able to practice these ACT strategies of the cognitive diffusion, the experiential acceptance, making space for the difficult feelings, but also widening attention, bringing attention back into the present moment, deep self-compassion. Those are the strategies, I think, that really support our capacity to live according to our values. And then if I look more broadly at wanting to make my own contribution with various teams and the support of many but wanting to make a contribution to perhaps a change in how we care for families in early life women and their babies there's enormous systemic obstacles many of which we've touched upon in this conversation and so being able to hold to the values even when there is so much difficulty so much challenge really 
in bringing forth something that's new, that's innovative. Again, you know, the acceptance and commitment therapy has been a very powerful set of strategies for me. And I think that there's something about that which is so complex that we would need to sort of look at it in a complex interventional, you know, research project to understand. But people feel as though when someone is in alignment with their personal values and they're acting in that way and they're bringing forth something into the world or communicating with another human being or in a situation in however they are in their lives where it is aligned with their values, people can sense that and people can sense organisations that are aligned with their values and people can sense when someone I'm not a big fan of the word authentic or inauthentic, but they get this sense of when someone's deviating outside of what's most important to them. And so I really feel that there's something around when we are in alignment with what's most important to us that really people do notice that on the other side. That's a lovely thing to say, actually, Ashley, and something for us all to hold to, really. I think you're right, but it's lovely to be reminded of that. We just need a binary study to prove it. <laughs> to a randomised <laughs> control trial. <laughs> we need some money. Yeah. Money, that's it, that's it. And that's an interesting question that perhaps we can leave with our listeners is how can we live and work and be in the world in alignment with what's most important to us yet still sort of push and bring attention towards and allow what needs to happen to change without moving from that center point and so deep practice around self-compassion I think is required it's kind of moving at that point into a conversation around leadership isn't it and what is it for each of us to lead whether it's within our own practice in the community and I think great deal of self-compassion if we find that we're leading in the context of pushback or obstacles that we decide we need to negotiate in order to continue to be aligned with our values, then loads and loads and loads of self-compassion because there's no day of complete alignment with values, is there, but we just give it our best. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Pam, for coming on and taking on this discussion and sharing from your experience and allowing us to have those nitty-gritty complex conversations in in a space like this. It's certainly such a privilege. It's my pleasure. I really enjoy it. So thank you. Before we sign off for the episode, we always finish off with a resource or tip of the week for our listeners. Well, actually, Ashley, I put a big part of my life fairly recently into writing a paper that's open access online around possibilities for preemptive intervention for autism spectrum disorder in at-risk siblings, so in children at familial risk. And it was a paper that showed why, you know, of all the interventions that are available in early life care, I would argue that neuroprotective developmental care is likely to be most protective for those children who are at risk genetically or biologically. And That's been translated then into a pathway that is available in our Parent Support Hub. It's a document for parents who are bringing a little one into the world, let's say has an older sibling who's been diagnosed with autism or indeed a parent who's doing a journey with autism and just suggests step by step where you might 
go to in the possum's resources to build up resilience, that resilience both for yourselves as parents, you know, for the family, but also for that little person coming into the world. So it's all very carefully framed because this is, if you like, this is hypothetical. Possums isn't claiming anything has been proven here. But given that parents get so much conflicting advice anyway about what to do, we put it forward and say, hey, we propose that you could give what we're doing a go because we think it's really likely to promote neuroresilience. Thank you. Charlotte? My tip of the week is this amazing data tool called Cubico. So if you're not a practice owner, you might not be as excited as me. I mentioned that I do enjoy data big time. And Cubico is this amazing data tool that's been developed for practices to be able to really make sure that their business models actually deliver the best quality care for their patients and actually make the best sort of optimise their income. And it's just incredible because it actually really gives you insightful data about the care you might be delivering, say, for your Aboriginal population. So if I looked at our practice, we can see how many patients that we've actually got registered as being identifying as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and then actually start looking at the service delivery that we're doing to them and what that might align with in terms of what their health diagnoses, etc. are. And then we can start to actually really tailor our system of care to not only improve the income to the practice and to the doctors, but actually improve that, I think, the health outcomes for the patients. So it's called Cubico, developed by Inala, practice manager for Inala, which was at Queensland. And because it's a practice that is owned by the community and delivers services for the community in a very socio-demographically poor area, so they actually have to have a business model that runs on bulk billing. And so this was really important that they actually, to be able to to really deliver quality care, they needed to actually make sure that they aligned that with high quality, proper billings as well. The resource that I want to share today is a website called Safe Exercise at Every Stage. And this is a website that actually is holds the guidelines or the clinical guidelines for managing and incorporating exercise into eating disorder treatment. So I learned recently that if someone with an eating disorder is told not to exercise, they have worse outcomes than if they are incorporating safe exercise into the eating disorder treatment plan. And this particular website actually holds the data and the research around what level of exercise is safe at what stage and how to facilitate safe exercise. And it's going to be presented at the ANZED conference in Perth this year and they're going to start training health professionals into how to actually prescribe safe exercise for people with eating disorders and it's based around this idea of learning about intuitive and mindful movement and an understanding in your body when you're exercising when you're going to that zone of I'm trying to push here rather than you know be in tune with my body so it's a super exciting resource that I learned about and really excited to share thank you everybody well thank you and thank you so much from me too Pamela it's been really lovely being able to sort of take our mind on these lovely journeys into understanding our values and the way that it actually flavors uh, the medicine that we deliver
I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's quite precious to have this kind of opportunity.